0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Adrian Perkins is
1: a great American story. Raised by a single mother in Shreveport, Louisiana, he overcame the challenges of poverty and violence to attend West Point, where he was the first African-American president of the student body. He served in Iraq and Afghanistan, won a Bronze Star, attended Harvard Law School after leaving the military, and at 31 returned to his hometown to win election as mayor. A remarkable story, and as we learned at the Institute of Politics last spring, where he served as a fellow, a genuinely inspiring person. Here's our conversation. Adrian Perkins, it's great to see you. First of all, let me thank you for being a fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics and helping us uh, inspire a bunch of young Adrian Perkins types. I want to thank you for that, but thanks for being here.
2: Of course, happy to be here, David. Thank you for the invite. It, uh, serving at University of Chicago was an honor for me. I'm on a mission after I left the office to try to inspire as many young people as possible. So that was the perfect destination for me. So I really enjoyed it.
1: I want to talk about that. But before we get into that, I want to talk about your own journey, which is in and of itself an inspiration. But talk to me about your early years in Shreveport and growing up in Shreveport, Louisiana.
2: Yeah, I always tell my students, this is the, the non-Wikipedia version of me. I was born in city Grove, Perry, Tree, Forest, the one of the poorest communities and neighborhoods here. Uh, my mom had my mom and father had me, and I had two older brothers. Uh, unfortunately, my father ended up leaving the family when I was three. Um, we were already kind of financially struggling, but we really started to struggle at that point. Um, but I had a superhero for a mother. What we didn't have in resources and material resources, she made up for with the values that she taught us. Um, so, uh, but we still went through those circumstances. I remember some of my earliest memories sleeping under the bed because we used to have to have our so and I didn't want to get shot as a kid. Stop
1: right there. Cause I read this and, uh, you know, I think about this a lot because the university of Chicago is on the South side of Chicago. There's a lot of shooting on the South side, a lot of young people going through what you went through. And I often think about what it is like. To grow up with that fear. And I just have this sense that we're creating a whole generation of young people who are walking around with untreated PTSD. Oh, yeah. So, talk about what it was like to be a kid sleeping under your bed, hoping that your bed will provide protection, or worried that if you sleep on your bed, you could get hit by a stray bullet. What was it like for you? What do you remember? feeling and
2: thinking. Yeah. I mean, the, it was traumatic. Like I can remember that to this day, you know, when a kid is sleeping under his bed, uh, at nighttime, uh, that he's going to, he or she is going to walk around with an anxiety the next day is not going to quickly be forgotten either. Um, you know, when you go to school, you're going to carry that with you. When you're interacting in the neighborhood, you're going to carry that with you. And not be sure, you know, where danger lurks. And when you're a child trying to figure out the world, that's not what you want introduced, right? That's not the most ideal circumstances. So not an ideal situation at all. And I'm very blessed uh, that I had my mom and that I had my community to add those positive experiences to balance out the negative in my life.
1: Talk about your mom. You called her superhuman. I, I read somewhere she she worked three jobs yeah, to support you and your two brothers. Tell me what kind of presence she was in your
2: life. Yeah, she was, um, it's weird. It's, it feels when I look back, like she was omnipresent. She somehow worked those jobs where she still was able to take me to, uh, sports practices and, and, and support my brothers and things of that nature. But my mother was a very, is a very religious woman. Um, you know, sh- she made sure that she kept us in the church as well. I, we, we grew up church of God in Christ Kojic. So. I was at church. I was doing everything from Bible study to prayer. She had me in the choir. I couldn't sing, uh, so <laughs> really grew up with a strong with a strong church background. But yeah, I remember her picking me up from school, and we would go. I would go with her either to uh, her second job, where she cleaned office buildings at night. I remember doing plenty of homework in these you know fancy office buildings, sometimes bank buildings, not so fancy, uh, while my mother vacuumed and cleaned up uh, office buildings at night. On some nights she would pick me up and she would go to college. She would go to school. She went to, she took college classes at night. So by the time I graduated from middle school, she had a bachelor's degree. Um, So she showed me the importance of hard work and she showed me the importance of education early. It was just, you know, a woman that was going to make a way for her family. And even with the black woman in the South working two jobs, we still struggled. You know, I, you know, again, that was while we lived in that neighborhood. Um, It was plenty of nights when we still didn't have enough food, despite her working end to end and you know, growing up like that very much uh, also influenced the policies that I implemented when I became the mayor. I wanted to make sure that we uh, helped out as many of our citizens as possible, especially those that I knew were working, you know, harder than most, yet still falling behind.
1: You obviously excelled at school. I know you excelled in athletics, but you also must have excelled in academics because you got the opportunity to go to West Point, you also were the the president of the student body in your school, and this replicated itself at every level of education that you attained. What is it that drew you to that? I mean, it, you you are you are sort of a natural <laughs> yeah. politician.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. This is gonna be a very funny story because it wasn't intentional whatsoever. I, I grew up. I wanted to play sports. Let me, let me credit my brothers here. I hope they don't watch this because we're extremely competitive and I never credit them with anything. But <laughs> one of my, my middle brother was extremely good at sports and my oldest brother was extremely good with academics. Um, so as a kid and I'm seven years old, younger than my middle brother. I'm nine years younger than my older brother. Uh, as a child, I didn't really get the concept of age well. I wanted to beat them both in sports and in the classroom, despite that big age gap. Uh, So that's what really made me focus in class and really wanted me to focus in sports. But sports was my first love. So I, when I, in high school, I was like, I'm going to be an athlete. And, you know, it was all about football and basketball and running track. And one day me and my best friend were walking to sports practice and one of our friends stopped us and said, you should sign up for student government. And we laughed at her. I was like, no, no, no. We, you know, we play sports. We know our lane. We, we just want to be the high school jocks. And uh, she's like, no, you need to sign up. She's like, you don't have to do anything. It's just a popularity contest. <laughs> so me and my best friend looked at each other and said, all right, let's try this out. And we walked in the room, signed up, didn't do anything and ended up winning uh, and become I became my class president for the first time uh, I, I ran out my sophomore year in high school. And yeah, as you pointed out, that pattern continued to repeat itself all the way up through graduate school, where I was student body president at Harvard Law School. And four years at West Point. Four years at West Point, yeah. Uh, And the first African-American graduate to be class president as well. It must have been more than
1: just a popularity contest for you once you did the thing. Although I I must say, I didn't have the confidence that you did. I (laughs) would be worried about submitting myself to a
2: popularity contest every year yeah well, you know what at West Point, it wasn't even confidence, and I tell this story. it was naivete. I didn't know much about West Point. I didn't know much about what I should do at West Point. My mom, you know, my mom went to you know night school, she didn't have the traditional college background, and she was like the first person in her family to do it, so I didn't have many reference points. so what I told myself when I got into West Point was Adrian, you should do the same things you did in high school, not knowing that everybody at West Point was their class president in high school was the captain of the track team. So, you know, it was one of those things I kind of inadvertently out of uh, naivety walked into and it worked out for me.
1: Let's back up for a second to the decision to go to West Point because it was very much tied up with a an event everybody who was alive at that time remembers, which was nine eleven.
2: Yeah. 9/11. yeah. Yeah. So I was not intending to go to West Point. I was, uh, intending to go to LSU. Um, but my junior year on September 11th, when the World Trade Centers were attacked, that's when I changed course quite a bit. My older brother was actually already in the military at the time. Uh, so I knew a little bit about the military because I spent some summers with him. Um, but, uh, after watching those towers fall that morning, that's when I made the decision that I was not going to LSU. West Point had already recruiting me at that point. And um, I started to take that recruitment serious. And I set myself on the path to get my nomination and go to West Point.
1: And what was that experience like? How did West Point change you or, or help form who you are?
2: Oh, I think it changed me in um, in very, like, fundamental, but very, like, revolutionary ways as well. And, and I'm going to – I'll jump into that. The reason being is because, you know, obviously I was an athlete coming out of Louisiana. Um, I was I was somewhat of a leader being class president, Um, but going to West Point, you're around a bunch of class presidents, a lot of type A people, but also it removed me out of Louisiana as well. Uh, I got to see more of the world and it gave me a discipline unlike anything that i had ever had. And I was already a pretty disciplined kid. You know, I would, I would wake up in high school, I was already waking up at 530 in the morning running before I would have to go to school. So I was already pretty disciplined. Um, but West Point gave me a discipline and taught me how to focus and orient myself around missions. And it taught me how to lead various groups of people, not just people that grew up in a, in the a neighborhood beside me or my own neighborhood. Um, and yeah, that that gave me the tools and talk about confidence. That's where it was introduced. It gave me the tools and the confidence to let me know I could survive in any scenario that I was ever put in. I could lead in any scenario that I was put in. Uh, if necessary. And yeah, it was just a transformational experience that I'm I'm very blessed to have and 100% accounted for a lot of the other successes that I received throughout my life. Obviously, and you kind of referenced this
1: uh, West Point was a much more diverse environment.
2: Uh, when you were growing up, how diverse was your school? It was very diverse. I went to a public school, uh, David. It was a very diverse. But the diversity is different in the South and Louisiana. My diversity was black, white. Um, mm-hmm. When I go to West Point, I'm exposed to Latino people and I'm exposed to Jewish people and I'm exposed to Asian people, or, you know, people from, from uh, various different backgrounds. We even had cadets come from other countries. So the diversity was very different. Um, my student body in high school or something else that it kind of gave me some tools to to do was almost split 50, 50 black, white students. So, you know, if you want to win a, a, a class president election, you have to be able to talk to black and white students. And that was a um, ability that not a lot of students had. Uh, one thing about me growing up as well that's embedded in my story is although I grew up in Cedar Grove, an all-black neighborhood, I was educated in a neighborhood named Broadmoor, which was um pretty much a predominantly middle class white neighborhood, uh, off of a program called Majority to Minority Transfer Program, M&M Transfer. And, you know, night when I got home, I was around a lot of black people. And by day, when I was at school, I was around, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, white children in gifted classrooms, um, as well. And I would see friends, you know, some of my black friends on, on some of my breaks. But yeah, I had to be able to learn a lot of different languages and lingo and cultures. Was
1: that hard making when you were a yeah, kid, beef, not the West Point experience, but the, yeah, when you
2: were, when you were a kid, was it hard toggling back and forth between those environments? It was unconscious, actually. Um, I didn't learn about code switching and all those technical terms until much later in my life. It was very unconscious. Uh, I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be accepted. Uh, I wanted to uh, do good by people. I didn't want to get in trouble. I also saw a lot of people being, you know, the, the criminal justice system in my neighborhood taking away uh, neighborhood leaders and, and young people and all that other stuff. So I knew I had a, a pretty tight line to walk. Uh, so it was pretty unconscious to me. And I got some very genuine, genuine great friendships that I have to this day. Actually, crazy enough, I talked to my elementary best friend yesterday on the phone. as a white guy. Um, him and my his mother and my mother are the closest and they're probably best friends to this day. So no, developing those friendships, it was just unconscious and it was just baked into the environment for me.
1: We were at war. That's the reason that you went to West Point and you Ultimately, were deployed, and we'll talk about that in a second. But uh, we talked earlier about violence in your community, and you talked about sleeping under your bed and so on. Did you lose friends? Did you know people who were injured and killed? I did. I mean, you—you you, so you were familiar with casualties
2: at a very early age. Yeah, um, I did um, from the neighborhood context to the military context. I, I did. And, you know, in, in, in talking to my therapist, it probably wasn't uh, the best thing for me going from from that type of neighborhood environment to the military. Uh, and, and I've had to, you know, kind of hash those things out in my older age. But yeah, it was a lot of familiarity with it that allowed me to just go through it and keep going. Uh, in the military, I was stationed, by, the first time we lost soldiers was my first deployment in Afghanistan. Um, where we had a direct rocket attack on one of our fire direction centers. I was a battalion operation officer and we lost two people immediately uh, on impact. And then a third um, soldier bled out on the plane, Jamar Higgs, who's from Arkansas. He bled out on the uh, medevac out. And that was in a moment where you know, death in the military isn't the same as it is in real life where we can, we have a moment to grieve. Uh, being an operations officer, I was actually responsible for working harder in that particular moment because uh, we had to make sure we were able to call in those nine-line medevacs as quickly as possible. We had to make sure we established security as quickly as possible. We had to get our firing point back up where we fired those artillery rounds back at the enemy as quickly as possible. So in that particular moment, I didn't get a chance to to grieve or even think about what just happened, even though I just lost, you know, some very, very close friends. Um, and it, the it, the FOB name was Wilderness. Uh, you just had to go into action. So, yeah, it's very, very, very atypical things uh, that occurred to me uh, growing up. I'll, I'll put it that way. You
1: talk about seeing a therapist. We have a huge problem with mental health issue with mm-hmm. return, returning veterans from battle. And I, I wanted to ask you about that. Because I had an interesting conversation a while back with someone on this podcast, someone from the military with military experience who said that every, you know, you're trained to there's the old phrase, you know, you soldier on, you soldier on, you're trained to sort of keep going, you're trained to sort of not let your emotions uh, take hold and to just kind of suck it up and deal with what's ever in front of you, which is necessary when you're at war, uh, but hard, uh, as a human being, uh, when you're not, uh, if you're trained not to share, if you're trained not to reach out for help, uh, this strikes me as a huge problem we have to overcome.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, it does. And the you know, interesting Growing up in an African American community, uh, there's a stigma on there was a stigma is getting better on mental health and going to see a therapist. Um, and then going into the military, a very similar stigma on, you know, mental health and you want to see a therapist. There's a there was a weakness associated with it. And that's the reason why to this day I talk about it so freely as well, because I want people to see this, you know, military veteran, this college athlete, you know, people that fit those kind of manlier stereotypes to talk about therapy freely. And I have Plenty of friends It's like, oh, my God, I'm so happy you told me you went to therapy. Like, I'm going to go. I've been thinking about it. I've been on the fence. I'm going to go. And you'd be surprised, David. I'm talking about, you know, military, um, you know, majors, colonels. I'm talking about mayors that'll hear me talking about it even to this day and say, I'm really happy you told me this story. So that's the reason why I I try to be as open about it as possible, because it's helped me uh, rewire after, you know, I've left the military and I don't have to be in soldier mode anyway. I have to exist in a completely different dynamic and with completely different circumstances. I have to be there for my family in various ways that, you know, I, I have to go through these things and I have to deal with, um, you know, my past experiences and I have to deal with friends in a certain way. So this has been very, very helpful for me and it keeps me healthy too, very healthy.
1: Yeah, these unseen wounds mm-hmm. uh, can be as deadly as the ones we see if they're untreated. You're a good example of, of someone who, who took action. And yeah. I, I just hope if there are people who are struggling, who are listening to this, and I, I talk about it all the time, so they're probably saying, man, I wish you'd stop talking about that. But yeah. uh,
2: no, we got to keep doing it.
1: We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files.
2: There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. And
1: now, back to the show. You were 23 years old, and you mm-hmm. were commanding a, a unit. Talk about that, because now you're, you're 23, and you have
2: the lives
1: of other human beings in your hand.
2: Yes. I was 23. I was a platoon leader in Iraq in um, the Marines, they called him platoon commander. So I had responsibility of 30 plus soldiers. I was in Iraq and we were, I was an artillery unit, but we had an infantry mission. So we would go around all day and do stuff that the infantry units would have because we, Iraq was a very built up area. We weren't firing rounds into the city at that point. So every day we would go around and set up traffic control points. Uh, sometimes we would go out and look for high value targets. We have various missions, but I'll tell you, and I, I'm honest with a lot of young people that I talk to because I get this question a lot. On my first mission, I was very, very afraid. Uh, that is not something that I was like confident and cocky about either going into it, um, but it was knowing that those 30 people were watching me that really gave me the courage to be able to do what I had to do. And then once you do all one mission and two missions and three missions, you get very comfortable. So I ended up doing, you know, over a hundred combat missions in, in Iraq. But, uh, what set the conditions for it is the day I flew into Baghdad, we got mortared while my plane was landing. So we had to run off the plane and get into bunkers because there was mortars hitting the tar- tarmac. So I'm like, wow, this is a way for war to start off as my first deployment. <laughs> And then, um, in my first mission out, where I was actually the commander on the mission, we were we had hmm. this van that would check for organic material, and we had to take it out to a certain traffic control point. The carrier that it was on broke down, and when
1: you say organic
2: material, what do you mean? So the organic material that they use to make bombs, we would uh-huh. set it up at checkpoints to check cars for that organic material. And the PLS is this long vehicle; it's like an eighteen-wheeler without the top to it. It's just a long trailer. Uh, broke down on one of the busiest streets in in Iraq. And for security reasons, you need to keep as big of a buffer around you as possible when you're doing operation. And we're on one of the biggest streets. So I had to get out of my vehicle and all I could see it playing in my head was, you know, the the scenes on CNN and everything else where people were getting blown up and this and this and this. And I had to get out of my vehicle, first mission out, very unorthodox, not going according to plan at all and be able to establish a security perimeter around, our PLS so that we could come and they can, you know, tow it out. Uh, and it was extremely nerve wracking shutting down one of the busy streets in Baghdad, middle of the day, mission not going right at all. It's my first time and I'm 23 years old. And I could tell though all my soldiers, as soon as they seen me step out of the vehicle, they were able to step out of the vehicle and just get on the mission. And that's when I was like, okay, this is what it takes to lead in this environment. And um you know, the deployment went pretty well after that.
1: Did you ever uh, find yourself Either in Iraq or Afghanistan, questioning the mission. No, that occurred afterwards. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that that occurred afterwards. I I understood that the way that I always envisioned the military and my role uh, with the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan and the questions around it is um, that we were the we were the arm of the United States, and you know our elected officials were the ones responsible for. Uh, you know, throwing that that punch or, you know, putting us in uh, those mm-hmm. situations to defend the country. And I had the utmost trust in that process as a young person. I think there was a lot of naivety there. Uh, but yeah, obviously, as I've gotten older and I've read a lot more about those wars mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the reasons that we were being there, especially Iraq, um, I have had questions about my involvement and I had to to situate my involvement in in that particular war.
1: Eventually, you you left the military, and you went to Harvard Law School. Tell me about that decision and why you decided to go to law school.
2: Yeah, so a couple of different factors to it. I um, I was at a crossroads in the military, so I did a couple of things. I applied to teach economics at West Point, which is my dream job for the military, uh, and I applied to law school at the same time. I wasn't sleeping much at this time. Apparently not, yeah. Yeah, but I wanted options um, for myself, um, and I ended up getting accepted to the to teach at West Point I was supposed to go to the social sciences department. Uh, and I ended up getting accepted to law school, which I actually didn't have a lot of faith in. I didn't know about. I am the first person in my family to go to law school and, um, and just talking to some of my mentors and looking at the trajectory of my life, I actually wanted to come back to my hometown sooner than doing a 20 year military career. And I figured if I would go to law school, it would create a shorter path for me. Um, But a lot of my mentors also told me like, hey, I think that this, you know, not everybody gets into Harvard Law School. I think this is something that you need to, to take advantage of. So I ended up leaving the military in July of 2015. I was a company commander in Afghanistan where I had about 200 soldiers in my headquarters company. And I uh, started law school in August of 2015. So a very quick transition. And And there's some stories to tell about that. But um, yeah, I made the decision to to transition out and go to law school thinking that I would be a corporate lawyer and, you know, become a partner and make some money and then be able to come back to my hometown. And obviously, none of that happened.
1: Well, you came back to your hometown, the making the money money part (laughs) yeah, uh, Yeah. uh, didn't. How were you received as a veteran at Harvard? Did you feel thoroughly integrated there as a veteran? And also, uh, how was the diversity at at Harvard Law School?
2: Yeah. So the diversity at Harvard was more than diversity at West Point. Um, I didn't talk about the statistic earlier, but when I was at West Point, it was about 7% African American. Um, I think we had, we either were right at or hadn't broken a threshold of 20% women yet as well. Um, and I'm very proud of my undergrad institution, uh, especially when, uh, under the leadership of General Chasm, when he came in a few years later. He doubled the African-American population there. Um, I think um, I know for a fact he got beyond 30 percent women um, population. So West Point is a much more diverse institution than when just when I went there and graduated in 2008. But Harvard was way more diverse.
1: Well, I got to ask you two things that are are separate issues. One is about this recent Supreme Court ruling disallowing uh, affirmative action by race. What was your reaction to that decision?
2: Yeah. You, you know what? I am a very complicated person when it comes to affirmative action. Um, I think that, I, I want to say this, my friends from West Point, I have like this group of friends that are my best friends to this day. A lot of us are similarly situated in being Southerners from low-income backgrounds. Um, you know, a lot of us with single-parent homes, I think 80% of us. Um, and I cannot, and, and to this day, some of them are on track to be generals in the Army, some of them aren't tracked to be C-suite executives. Uh, some of them, these are leaders in our society today. And without our time at West Point, I can't see that happen going to to other institutions. And, you know, obviously my imagination might just not extend there. And and a lot of us, I'm sure, benefited from affirmative action. So I'll say that, you know, I'm a fan of, of affirmative action there, but I will tell you this, David, when I went to Harvard, and I'm throwing out some more statistics and I, I think student body presidents get this information probably a little bit more than most students. The poorest 15% of my law school class made double the average American family salary. $120,000 was the poorest 15%. Now I come from a household where my mom made like 30 something thousand dollars. Right. So I'm a massive outlier there. Um, I 100% believe there needed to be um, socioeconomic considerations in our admissions process on top of just not just race. And that being said, me just being Black does not make me fit into rooms at Harvard. Uh, And I'm sure it's like that across the Ivy Leagues. When somebody from such a low-income background walks into those rooms, there's just as much of a learning curve and things for me to catch up on. Uh, You know, when I'm encountering Black people with summer homes, Black people whose families were corporate lawyers, you name it. Um, and with affirmative action, it, it, the, the previous form of it, it put us all on the same scale. Uh, and I don't think it achieved the diversity in which it was looking for to this day, the way that socioeconomically we've become polarized and disparities in our society. So what I would say is that I think that it needed to be overhauled anyway. And I hope that we can use this as an opportunity to consider more uh, socioeconomic diversity on top of just racial diversity. But the diversity. The racial diversity is very much needed for sure, but I think there's some things that we can do to really modify that and bring the even more richer experiences into the classrooms and eventually into society.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, President Obama said in the past that he didn't think his daughters, who had all the advantages that they had, needed to benefit from affirmative action. And, and the point was exactly the one you're making, which is this is an issue of class as well as race. yeah. The other question I wanted to ask you is, as a soldier, you said you made the transition very quickly. Was that a hard
2: transition from the military life to the Harvard law student life? Yeah, it actually wasn't. I I had a blast. You got to think about my perspective, right? You know, a lot of these students, um, and and by the way, I was 29 when I went to law school. They call us owls, older, wiser law school students. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, so so my perspectives were very different. I was used to a tough, hard military life at that point. Uh, and a lot of my classmates were coming out of undergrad. So like studying was all that they knew. So my perspectives were very, very different.
1: We're probably le- le- maybe less intimidated by. Yeah, uh,
2: I wasn't intimidated at all. No. By flinty law professors. <laughs> yeah, not at all. I wasn't intimidated at all. I was excited about the challenge. I was excited about learning law. I was excited that I got this opportunity to begin with. So you mentioned
1: earlier that you had this vision that you or you were advised that you could do this Harvard experience, go out to a corporate law firm, make some money and then return home to Shreveport. Uh, And it strikes me, you probably could have written your ticket anywhere in a law firm or a corporation when you left uh, Harvard Law School. You could have made a fair amount of dough. Uh, doing it and set yourself up for life. But you didn't even wait until you graduated from Harvard Law School to run for mayor, mayor of Shreveport. You were at once a Harvard Law student
2: and a candidate for mayor. I was, I was. That that is a very true story. But once again, not anticipated on my end. What happened, this is the way the story goes. What happened was I was a 2L. I had already been accepted to go to Sidley uh, Austin, very prominent law firm. Now, I ran for student body president. So I recorded a video when I was a 2L and I put it on my social media page, which I have a lot of friends and family back home that saw my video. Um, so I tell people, I don't know if like locally viral is a thing, but my video uh, began to go like locally viral and spread around my community. And a lot of people started to reach out to me and ask me what were my plans after law school. Emphatically, I told him I'm going to a corporate law firm. I told him my plan and I told him, but eventually I do want to be back in Shreveport. Um, So I remember my best friend calling me and asking me to consider coming back to run for for mayor. Uh, And, you know, it was other uh, people that had already called that specifically wanted me to do that.
1: Did the video speak to your experience in Shreveport? Did you talk about Shreveport?
2: No, I so no, the only thing I talked about in the video was myself and my vice president, Amanda Lee. And the only thing we talked about was leading the student body and bringing the student body together and advocating for students. But one thing, the video was posted on my middle school's website. Um, I think one of the assistant principals posted that video, but they were trying to recruit students to my middle school. And I think they were trying to make the equivalence of if you go to this middle school, you can go to Harvard Law School. Pretty big stretch. So that's how yeah. it started to spread in the community, not just for my own social Although media. Although
1: if family. you're a kid and you see someone like you, it does sort of expand your your sense of what <laughs> what couldn't
2: be what is possible. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. I am very aware of that reality and that is the motivation behind a lot of the things that I do and a lot of things that I say. So you're you're right. But I think it would have been pretty arrogant of me to think that, oh, you know, uh that video is going to To inspire people to ask me to run for mayor. I had no idea that that was going to happen at all. I was I was focused on the task at hand, which was just being a student body president. And yeah, it went vocally viral and people called me and I made a compromise with my best friend and some other leaders. I said, hey, I will go to Sidley Austin and see how that is. And then I will come back my first semester to do an exploratory period uh, and I will go back and forth between Shreveport and Cambridge. And I I did that. And after that exploratory period, David, where I was knocking on the doors of, of hundreds of people a day and asking them, you know, what they wanted to see out of a community and, and what they wanted to see out of a mayor and a leader and hearing their stories about their neighborhoods, about their families and just realizing no matter what part of town I was in, the east side, the west side, predominantly black neighborhoods, white neighborhoods, everybody wanted the same thing. They wanted security. They wanted, you know, their families to be safe. They wanted opportunity. They wanted jobs. Um, you know, just hearing it across the board, I knew that my heart was very much in continuing my public service and not going to a corporate law firm as much as I love my experiences at Sydney Austin. What did you learn?
1: What were you exposed to in law school that you saw as applicable to going back and running for mayor? Were there things you learned and said, you know what, I can
2: apply this to Helping my hometown. I will tell you, and being honest, it wasn't a whole lot that I learned from law school. I think my crucible of leadership that I used the most and I knew I was going to rely on the most was from the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, the law school, I would say, helped me understand the more liberal environments of America. Um, you know, I was I was considered extremely moderate coming out of a military background where I thought I was pretty progressive. Uh, in that particular environment. So I had to work as a moderate and pull together a lot of different student organizations that were ideologically very different around common themes, common missions to host different events, uh, and to really facilitate student life and more of a unity, uh, a, you know, a unified fashion opposed to a disorganized one.
1: So you went back, you were what, 30, 31 years old by then? I was 31. Yep.
2: I was 31. Uh-huh. Time.
1: And tell me what you, what the, what you walk into the door. You're faced with fiscal problems, huge crime and violence problems, antiquated physical plant of the city. Tell me what you thought when you sat your butt down in that big chair and realized this is my responsibility now. Yeah,
2: David, you, you've you done your homework. I feel like you were there with me as you just explained my situation. <laughs> um, it's a couple of profound thoughts I had. One of them was um no longer do I have a battalion commander or a division commander to run issues up to higher leadership. Like I am the last stop here. Um, you know, it's kind of going a transformation from a captain in the military. And then three years later, without any leadership specific training, three years later, I'm like running the military, you know, there is nobody else to go to with an issue. So that was one of those profound things that I learned. I
1: kind of grew up as a city hall reporter in Chicago, and I fell in love with local government and local politics. And I ended up doing mayors' races all over the country. And one of the things that strike struck me about it then and now is that unlike other offices, people hold the mayor accountable. Like something happens on in on their block, you know, they're not writing their congressman or their governor or their senator. The mayor is responsible. For that and you live in the community, so they're there to let you know. It's not like you're gonna avoid them. Uh you know, you, you you're you're there among them. So I think that makes it the most vital and also most challenging form of government.
2: I agree. You live with the policies that you implement on a daily basis. There is no driving an hour, or two hours to, you know, this, the state house. There is no, uh, flying to DC. You are living with everything that you do. You're living with the constituents. Uh, and, and something else that's hard, David, at the beginning of that, uh, as well, it makes it even tougher is that people want you to fix things immediately. Um, That, that's another very difficult element to that. So as you're trying to understand all these problems and you realize like, okay, uh, my citizens are holding me accountable. They're holding you accountable immediately for policies that were implemented five months ago, five years ago, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And that's something that I had to realize too. It was never sufficient for me to say, you know, you know, sorry, that was, you know, a previous administration, but we're trying to remedy it. I really just had to forget saying it was the previous administration to say, hey, you know, we understand this has been an issue for a while. You know, this is the plan that we have to, to remedy that. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a very difficult position to be in.
1: And you're also, I mean, the flip side is you're in a position to make changes mm-hmm. and see the changes that you've made. You can yeah. roll down a street and see, you know, an abandoned, dangerous building that you took down and put something else there. You can there are things yeah. you can see. Uh, what are the things I, I know that you technology was a big piece of what you brought to, uh, Shreveport and, and sort of deploying the tools of that are available, uh, today that yeah. weren't available five, 10, 15 years ago. But tell me yeah. about the, the, mm-hmm. the progress that you made. And then let's talk about that pandemic that you had to confront in the middle of all of that.
2: Yeah. So take, so my, my platform was about public safety. Um, I wanted to implement more community oriented policing. As a matter of fact, two months before I took office, we had an officer involved shooting um, uh, with an African-American male um, named Alvin Childs that the community was still reeling about. Once I stepped into office, I wanted to talk about economic opportunities as well. Uh, Shreveport was just like the, uh, the, the, the Rust Belt with they got crushed with outsourcing and automation. So I wanted to make sure that we talked and we were very aggressive with our economic plan. And lastly, I wanted to implement technologies. Uh, we were probably a couple of decades behind with e- technology adoption at City Hall. Um, but I not only wanted City Hall to do that, I wanted the community to adopt technology and get more used to it as well. So I tackled those problems that way. And you already pointed out I had a fiscal deficit. That was one of the things I had to attack first, because let me tell you, another point of naivety, me talking on the campaign trail about all these things I wanted to do. Uh, and not realizing you need resources and money to do those things. Uh, when I walked in and one of the secrets that I found underneath the seat of the mayor's office was that we were we had a negative one point three million dollar deficit. We weren't even supposed to be running a deficit at all. Uh, so I knew we were going to be struggling. So I, I I always ran to my CTO, my chief technology officer, when there were bigger issues and asked him, hey, is t- can tech help us in any way? Uh, unfortunately, they found um some some uh unclosed transaction orders uh to the tune of three million dollars pretty quickly uh that they were able to consolidate and get into our fund. So we um just using technology and doing some deep diving into our our uh accounting, we were able to to cover up that deficit and start off with something.
1: You also face in a lot of cities do unfunded pension obligations. You got attacked for that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Unfunded. And and David, you, you know how long these pension funds have been around. And I think you can safely say I wasn't the one to to start it and, and have put us in those negative positions. But don't forget healthcare costs as well. Uh yes, the, the, yes, the yes, annual yes, healthcare costs as well. a lot of people don't realize that. And those things weigh heavily on your operating budget. You're having to use money that you have right now and put those in, and patch up those gaps. Uh, but even with all those fiscal pressures. Uh, after the first year, we had already pulled ourselves out of a deficit. And I think we had eight to nine million dollars. And then after the second year, we had over 15 million dollars. That was without any federal assistance at all. Uh, so we did a good job at being, you know, fiscally responsible and still implementing technologies here and there. Uh, but yeah, we, we use technology in a lot of different ways. We use technology with our, uh, public safety officers by, um, standing up a real time crime center before I left office. We were able to get them more technology in the field to where they wouldn't have to do handwritten notes, and we could keep them on the on the road longer. Uh, with economic development, we always push having um, uh, broadband and expanding broadband opportunities in our our area as well to make sure that we had a very skilled and or the most skilled workforce that we can have. So yeah, technology was a, was a big part about the things we implemented. Fiscal responsibility, uh, we, we did everything that we possibly could. We're
1: going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You made headway on crime and public safety. Talk about that, and then you ran into the pandemic.
2: Yeah. So, the first year in office was the safest year in Shreveport in 40 years. Uh, We made a lot of headway on it. And again, we were leading with community oriented policing. I would lead myself neighborhood walks um, at least once, sometimes twice a month, along with my officers, because I wanted my officers to be exposed to the communities they were patrolling, not in just negative context. And I also wanted them to stay safe. That
1: that must have been informed by your own experience as a kid.
2: Oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. As I told you, you know, I, I, Saw the criminal justice system and law enforcement early and in, 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 in negative context. Um, but I also was informed by my time in Iraq as well. And, you know, understanding uh, with COIN and the the way that we were implementing our, our strategy, you have to get to know those village elders. You have to get to know those village leaders and realize there's a much bigger gulf between me and, uh, you know, a, a sheik in, in Iraq than there is between a law and a police officer here in Shreveport. In a neighborhood that they're and if I had to bridge that gap, and I saw the effectiveness of bridging that gap, and how we were able to get the intel that we needed, we were able to stabilize the communities that we needed. Then, yeah, it had a big impression on me that you need to know the people uh, whom which you are patrolling, whom you know mm-hmm. you, you exercise this type of t- uh, type of power over. So, yeah, that that informed me big time, and it was effective as well. I, I, we got a lot of praise for our involvement in getting out there and um, you know, being boots on the ground in our community, not just when they're calling us about emergencies. So how many months into your
1: administration was it when COVID surfaced? About what, 14, 14 months or something? Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: 14, as, soon as, as soon as my staff, you know, as soon as I knew what the bathroom was, uh, we, we got rocked. My, I remember being very proud of that and being excited about all the things that we could accomplish, considering what we accomplished in that first year. And lo and behold, you know, two months later, uh, the world around us completely changed. And we took all those skills and efforts and we deployed them into just keeping our city safe. And uh, we did a great job at it. We made the Washington, we're the front page of the Washington Post. We used technology in that instance.
1: One of the reasons you were on the front page of the Washington Post was your technology Mm -hmm. uncovered the fact that minority communities were vastly more exposed to the, the ravages of, of this, uh, why, why was that?
2: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, so once again, big problem, call in my chief technology officer to see what we can do with technology. Um, and we realized we gathered some data on where our, our EMS runs were, you know, and we were able to figure out that the virus is very much concentrated in the denser areas, the, 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 the urban neighborhoods in our city where, predominantly African-Americans live. And I'll tell you at the time when I was bringing this, even bringing this up to, to Louisiana Department of Health leadership, they were pushing back saying they didn't want to stigmatize these neighborhoods. But I was able to push against them even harder to say, I'm from this neighborhood. I know that these citizens want to be safe more than they want. They care about a stigma in this moment. And I'm going to publish this anyway. Um, so after we published those statistics and we got all this this coverage, the state followed suit. Other states followed suit. Other cities followed suit. You know, obviously, when a story like that runs, so you know, we were just we were committed to doing everything that we can to keep our citizens safe. We didn't care about you know what what people were saying. But my uh, question, Adrian,
1: is it seems to me that whenever something bad happens, whether it's a pandemic or a natural other kind of natural disaster, normal health. Risks and so on that poor communities and minority communities always over index.
2: Yeah. The saying of when America gets a cold, you know, black people get the flu. You ever heard that one? David?
1: Yes, I sure have.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the case, right? You got people, uh, not, not as many people with health care insurance. You still got stigmas on our health care system from the minority population, but also it's a density problem as well. Um, People don't realize a lot of uh, African-Americans live with extended family, um, just like in other areas as well. Uh, They don't have the biggest homes where they're sharing their family. They share what they have. Uh, So that was a problem. And also at the beginning of the pandemic, I'm I'm sure you remember there was a lot of misinformation as well. And uh, a lot of the people that we were seeing on the news and hearing about the the, the victims coming down with COVID. um, and, And this was trending on Twitter where black people didn't even think they could have it. Uh, so mis- we were fighting that mis- misinformation, too. Uh, and unfortunately, while that misinformation was going around and we were fighting all those historical barriers, uh, the virus didn't care about any of it. Uh, and it was ravaging our communities.
1: And was there resistance
2: in the community to vaccines? And was it hard to administer them? So so I'll, if I can share a story, if you'll humor me for one moment. I stood so up course. before the pandemic. I stood up a committee on race here in Shreveport, um, I, you know, coming from. New York and, and Boston and being in the military, I quickly realized we had a racial issue here in Shreveport. So I wanted to stand up a committee to study it and make proposals to me and to City Council on how we could mend the fences and try to bring people together. So I did that before the pandemic, before the George Floyd summer. So I was on a call with my committee um, and I was telling them and, and I was giving them an update on where we were with COVID. And um, I told them, hey, somebody brought up the vaccines and I told them, hey, we should be getting more soon. It was at the beginning of COVID when there was a mad dash on the vaccines. Um, and I said, I think we're going to hit uh, a point where African-Americans are not going to get the vaccines. I'm starting to hear some resistance in the community. And there was a pastor on the line that says, you're absolutely right. We need to get communication out there early. We need to be proactive about it one of my white commissioners raised his hand and said, hey, I think you're missing something uh, from the other side of the community. Uh, I go to Evangelical Church and I'm hearing people say that they're not going to take the vaccine. Uh, and there's already very strong rhetoric against it. Um, little did I know those two forces uh, would keep Shreveport as one of the lowest vaccinated places in America uh, after we, you know, kind of broke that 30 plus percent threshold where people where the original people wanted it. And we unfortunately made the front page of the New York times for that as well. Uh, they came down here when Louisiana was leading the country in lowest vaccine rate and was doing, you know, did a story about why people weren't getting vaccines. But I had those political currents, those religious currents, uh, alongside those historical currents and stigmas with our healthcare system in the black community. And that was a, a cocktail for disaster for us.
1: And another consequence in Shreveport as well as the rest of the country was
2: an explosion in crime. Mm -hmm. 100%. Yeah. We had an explosion in crime. Um, the pandemic year we broke, uh, we we almost broke the record during the pandemic year. We did break our homicide record the next year. So going from a community as the safest has been in 40 years to breaking a homicide record. Um, the pandemic did a, it did a number, a number on us and, and people don't realize how low, Officer morale was considering they were watching people stay at home, be safe from the pandemic, but they had to go out each and every day and expose themselves to things that we didn't even know about yet. They still put themselves in that gulf. Uh, and it was just hard to do policing at that particular time Um, that a lot of, I think, mental health issues were building up in our community because, you know, human beings aren't used to being stuck in the house and not going to work and things of that nature uh, and not socializing. So it was, it was, uh, Like I said, it was a cocktail for disaster for us and and communities throughout the country.
1: Now, in the midst of this, you decided to run for the United States Senate. I did. Against Bill Cassidy, a Republican Mm -hmm. incumbent. Didn't turn out well. Yeah. In retrospect, and, and I think partly it didn't, you lost and you lost Badly. But the bigger uh, issue may have been it also was fodder for your opponents in Shreveport to say, you know, you're off on your excellent adventure and we're we're right in the middle of this. Was it a mistake to run for the Senate?
2: No, I don't consider it a mistake at all. Let me explain my motivations behind it because I've explained it. And for some reason, a lot of times the the, the rhetoric does not get out there. um, And, and, you know, there's a certain narrative. So we, uh, at that point, we had already made the front page of the Washington Post. Um, we had already been uh, deploying resources in our community to keep small businesses afloat. We had started putting out micro grants. We were doing block grant dollars to help people with housing. Uh, and I saw a local budget cannot keep a city afloat, especially one where I didn't even inherit a city reserve. We are hitting our limit on keeping people afloat, but this is what I was doing every day. I was calling citizens and I would talk to 10 citizens a day about just like how life was going. And, you know, just to check on them, since I couldn't get out and do events, I needed to stay connected. And every phone, well, you know, just about every phone call, Mayor, I do not know how I'm going to pay rent today. Um, I do not know how I'm going to keep uh, a roof over, you know, my children's head. this is before they announced the uh, moratorium on housing. Mayor, I, I just lost my job. You know, they, they just laid us off. Uh, they won't be needing us. I You know, I, I don't know how I'm going to feed my family. I'm, I'm hearing, you know, Hey, you know, somebody just got shot in the neighborhood. I'm, I'm worried about the crime that's going on. Um, you know, all these things every single day and just talking to my citizen, I was like, I can't do anything else. Like I am at my limit and you know how powerful a mayor's office can be. And I saw the bickering going on in Washington DC and the fighting about this and this and this. And it seemed like they were taking their time and not realizing the urgent, the sense of urgency that was on the ground. If they were on those calls that I was on, I promise you they would have acted faster and they would have understood how much damage was being done to our community. Um, so, um, I was, I was in that, 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 that state of mind and some people were talking about the same, you know, obviously I was involved in, in state politics already at that point. And people were talking about the Senate race and, and some people actually did some polling on me without me even knowing about it and reached out and said, you know, hey, would you ever consider this? And I said, you know, hey, I want to stay focused the first couple of times they called. And then I got to the end of my rope and I was like, no, I need to help my people, even about change the conversation, even if I don't win. Right. And I know the odds that I was up against. I was up against a mountain. No African-American has ever been elected um, post-Reconstruction in the state of Louisiana for a statewide office. Uh, but. It wasn't about, people got to stop making politics about them too and realize, well, look, let me just say that this is my philosophy. Politics isn't about me just holding the seat. Politics is about me being in the seat and actually doing something when people mm-hmm. need it the most. Uh, so I didn't really care about, you know, making that sacrifice if I was going to be the sacrificial lamb, if I could actually get people help.
1: You did do damage to yourself because you ran for reelection. You finished fourth. You did not mm-hmm. make the runoff. How painful was that?
2: You know what, David, it was not painful to me um, because I knew I did everything that I possibly could. Uh, it was disappointing. It was some disappointing elements to it for sure. Let me be candid about that. Um, I love this city uh, and I thought I was the best person to leave this city. I had just finished leading the city through uh, multiple different crises. Um, so the disappointment was not knowing if my successor would be able to come in and keep the programs. You know, the the universal pre-K programs that we were running, the public safety program, right? If they would have the um competence or even the will to be able to keep those programs going and take care of the city. Um so I was disappointed about that part, our leadership not continuing on. Um, but I wasn't disappointing or regretting any decisions that I made either. Uh I know I did them all for the right reasons. And this is a, uh, you know, this is uh this is very much like a a labor of of love for me. Uh, I love my city. I gave it everything that I have and I, I got into the seat based off democracy and I was taken out of it based off democracy.
1: What next for you? I saw somewhere you say, well, now it's time to hand off the mantle of leadership to younger people. Yeah, man, I'm sitting here. You are a young person. Okay. Everybody's got their perspective, but by most yeah, measures, yeah. you are, you are the younger people who we want to hand off the mantle of leadership. Yeah. To. Are you, are you really done with, well, running for public office? So. No, no, no.
2: I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say I'm done. I just tell people like I'm not thinking about this for you know three to four years. But and let me give some broader context about why I say I'm, I want to encourage younger people to get involved. Uh, America is a joint project. Like we are in a it's just a joint project. Put yourself in a classroom, a science classroom. You got you know five other other students that are helping you on a joint project. Unfortunately, with us narrowing what service means to you, have to be in a uniform. Uh, A lot of times, whether it's armed services or a police officer or or a firefighter, with us narrowing down, we only got one or two people working on that project. Um, My time in office would have been much, much better uh, if we would have had more people uh, coming and approaching government with the same mentality that I have on giving. uh, And we have more citizens saying, okay, I can contribute too. And you have more hands in that group project. My time in office, the fate of my city, the fate of our country would be so much better if we can broaden that group project. So I don't want to be, you know, I talked about my, me being a sacrificial lamb earlier. I don't want to do that all the time. And we need more people to get involved and make those sacrifices in the public sector. Uh, so that's what I want to do with the next generation. I don't want, I'm not saying I'm putting up the next generation and I'm stepping back completely. I'm saying I'm, I want to encourage the next generation to step up. So that if I was to step back in, I have more people pushing along with me. And that's why I give credit to, to President Obama. He often told, was very candid with the American people and told them that he was going to ask a lot of them. And a lot of politicians don't do that. Uh, they come off with this like strong man, a strong woman persona as if they're the answer to all their problems. And that's just not the way government works. It's not the way our society works. And if we don't change soon, uh, you know, we're going to be living in an America that we're not used to.
1: The Supreme Court just uh, recently ruled on against the L- Louisiana congressional map and said that the map needs to be revised to provide more opportunities for African-Americans to uh, elect uh, uh, their representatives. Uh, is that does that uh,
2: is that something that would draw you? Uh, no, it's not something that would draw. It's too soon. It's too soon. I just I just stepped out and, and you know to put it in context, I went to West Point when I was 17. I'm 37 now, like 20 years of my life was was given a public service. So I'm I'm literally just taking a break right now. It's not something that'll draw me, but I'll tell you, as much as I said I was stepping aside, I've been more involved with local politics. I've given, you know, so much money to to local commissioners. Um, you know, we got a sheriff candidate here that's amazing right now. And I have I know the people that are gonna run for that seat. And I've talked to them on the phone and I'm you know, uh, I'm encouraging them as well. And I'm going to support them so that we can get that second representative because it will mean a lot to the state of Louisiana. Uh, it'll mean a lot to the city of Shreveport. And I want to be involved. I just don't have to always be the face of it. I don't always have to be the one sitting in that seat. Uh, and I want other people, other leaders to realize that as well. Uh, You you know, some of our our older generation, a lot of times they do not want to hand off that mantle. Their personality is so tied into the position. And that's not a, a trap that I want to fall into myself.
1: You know, you spent so much of your life talking about and living the uh, challenge of kind of bridging these gaps between people. And it seems like we're so divided right now. Mm-hmm. Tell me what your sense of where the country, where, where Louisiana is right now, where
2: the country is right now. And what do we do to get past it? I have very strong thoughts about this. So le- le- let me let me just say this, and, and I think I might've mentioned this to you. I think local government is the last bastion of the democracy that we were used to. Uh, and the reason I say that is because at the local level, uh, if you're the mayor, if you're a city council member, uh, you gotta go to the grocery store and you're gonna encounter not just your constituents, but you're gonna encounter other city council members. You're gonna have to go to church uh, and you're gonna encounter other elected officials that you're also interacting with. You got, you know, uh, little league baseball games, football games, gymnastics, you name it, where you're constantly interacting with these people. So just spouting out harsh rhetoric and distancing yourself and polarizing yourself doesn't work well at the local level, uh, at all, um, because you still have to keep that sense of civility. Now I'll tell you the nature of that changed between 2008 and 2022 when I was in office. Um, in 2000, 2018, sorry, when I, when I stepped in, Uh, that fabric was very strong and still holding tight. That's the reason why I think I was able to come into office with a coalition of young people, the LGBTQ community, uh, you know, uh, a lot of white moderate voters, a lot of the African American community. Um, but in 2022, when you look at the, uh, what's coming out of Silicon Valley and our social media companies that are propping up the worst of our voices with algorithms, uh, it's starting to tear that thread away. When you look to the other coasts, In Washington D.C. where our elected officials are removed from their policies and are putting out that rhetoric because it's the loudest voice, not the smartest voice that gets you on Fox News and CNN. They're ripping away their fabric. So the fabric at the local level that's holding together our democracy the most uh, is still being torn torn it. And that's not even considering the political dollars that are starting to come down uh, into these local races as well. So I think that, uh, our local level here in Shreveport, we're still doing well relative to state and federal. Um, but I do think that we are on a downward trajectory to meet that type of polarization. If we don't put some breaks into play very, very soon. Uh, and we as a society don't, we don't, we, we have to remember that we have way more in common with our neighbors than we have differences. And, and unfortunately, the rhetoric and our social media is not doing a very good job of reminding us of it.
1: Yeah, I agree. Adrian Perkins, you are a admirable aberration in all of this because <laughs> you are a relentlessly positive uh, voice for unity and for concerted a- efforts to uh, confront our problems. So I want to thank you for your service. You. I want to thank you for your example. And I want to thank you for helping to inspire young people at the Institute of Politics. Of course, it's
2: my honor. It's it's my my new form of service to the country. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thank
0: you, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder-Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, Visit politics.uchicago.edu.